2: The National Gallery seeks an architect to rethink the Sainsbury Wing, New York's Highline team chosen for the Camden Highline, a 25-metre-tall mound proposed for Marble Arch, and the extraordinary job advert for Thomas Heatherwick's new personal assistant. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'm going to be bringing you a review of this week's big stories of architecture in London. This week I'm joined by Catherine Slesson, first female art editor of the Architectural Review, contributing editor to the Architects Journal, uh, awarded an MBE for services to architectural journalism. Cathy knows everybody and everything. It's an immense honour to have you on the show this evening. How are things?
0: Uh, thank you, Merlin. I'm great. Uh, I'm Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: The big story this week is to do with the National Gallery searching for an architecture team to rethink the grade one listed Sainsbury Wing. It's an extraordinary building with an extraordinary history. Kathy, perhaps you could you could shed some light on what this building is.
0: Well, um, it comes on the back of a rather spicy debacle uh, in the early 80s, which was characterised as a tussle for the national soul of British architecture. Um, but this originally uh, emerged from a sort of more pragmatic requirement of um, the National Gallery making space for its collection. So 1982, this competition was held to find a suitable architect and it was an open competition. So they had hundreds of entries. You know, it was like the X-Factor editions when you get thousands of people queuing up in car parks. Uh, every architect from Land's End to John O'Groats um, thought if they won this competition, their name would be in lights and they'd be sort of you know, famous ever after. From this avalanche of entries, they had a short list of six schemes, including a high-tech proposal by Richard Rogers, who was the sort of the hot ticket architect at the time because he just finished the Pompidou Centre in Paris. And his scheme, it was all very proto-industrial, bristling with funnels and satellites, and hoiked up the galleries in this big metal box um, above the ground, sort of freed up the ground for um, a public plaza. And his was by far the most radical. And all the schemes, all six schemes were put on public display at the National Gallery and the public were allowed to vote on them which seems like an astonishing the generous act of democracy at the time letting the public choose this, the, you know, the building choose the architect and I was working in London at the time I was a sort of lowly architectural assistant to my year out and I remember the competition I remember the exhibition I remember going to the exhibition and I remember voting for Richard Rogers because I was a high tech groupie um, but it didn't win um, the design that won The public vote was by a firm called Arons, Burton and Korolek. And ABK were a sort of respectable middle-of-the-road modernists, nothing fighting the horses. And they won everything was chugging on. It was being worked up, put in for planning. And then, of course, in 1984, um, his royal highness, the Prince of Wales, decided to stick his oar in. And he was speaking at this dinner to mark the 150th anniversary of the Royal Institute of British Architects. And he described the AB scheme as a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much loved and elegant friend. And of course, the friend was uh, the rather dreadful original National Gallery building, designed by William Wilkins, um, which itself is not a good building. Um, King William IV described it as a nasty little pokey hole, a thackeray. The novelist called it a little gin shop of a building. And the distinguished architectural historian Sir John Summerson compared uh, its arrangement of a dome, a sort of mesen, a dome in the centre and two tiny turrets on its roof line, to the clock and vases on a mantelpiece, only less useful. Anyway, so Prince Charles's after dinner remark effectively torpedoed the ABK scheme which was then refused planning permission and it also effectively torpedoed ABK, who lost work because of it and never really recovered. So thanks for that, Prince Charles. So after this, everyone retreated for a bit to lick their wounds until a year later, 1985. Sainsbury family gave the National Gallery £50 million, and this changed the game because the previous competition in 1982 had to include the commercial offices as well as public gallery space in order to generate income. But thanks to the Sainsbury's largesse, it became possible to devote the extension entirely to the gallery um, without the need for offices. Limited competition was held rather than everybody being able to enter. And it was won by the American husband and wife team of Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, pioneers of postmodernism, with the building that you see today. Uh, And it sort of riffs off the Wilkins building in a slightly playful way. Um, The elevation... Was designed to resemble this kind of neoclassical stone curtain being pulled back. All very clever and self regarding, but it's by no means their best work. And they had to tread very carefully because they're actually stepping into this huge cultural and architectural minefield. But the galleries inside are actually quite good in their way because the spaces kind of relate to the painting, so it's not. A complete disaster. I mean,
2: just as a um, a self declared high tech groupie, what what was that uh, monstrous Carbuncle speech like at the time? Was it was it a really big deal? I mean, did it change everything?
0: I mean, yes it it was a sort of huge deal um, because it was um, it was the first time that a member of the royal family had intervened in a process uh, which he wasn't really supposed to, and you know it effectively changed the outcome. Um, but nobody. Um, could really say anything about this because, you know, he was the royal. Um, and this gave him license to meddle in architecture and push a kind of trad agenda. And this became quite influential in the 80s and 90s. And it sort of marked the nail in the coffin of British modernism and the ascendancy of postmodernism as a kind of national British sort of style of the day. Um, and it sort of prevailed in the battle of the styles between the sort of moderns and trads who'd been tussling over the direction of British cities for much of the past decade. So what started out as an extension of an art gallery turned out to be one of the most symbolic but very messy battles in British architecture.
2: And, and is it is it that backstory that makes the Sainsbury Wing as a building so fascinating? Because certainly... I think for a lot of people looking at it, it's quite a confusing thing to understand. I mean, th- th- yeah, there's some, clearly some columns there. There's clearly some, some very straight lines there. You know, it's, it's not immediately readable, whether it's classical or modernist or what's going on. Is, is the real significance the backstory or the building itself?
0: I think it's a bit of both because it sort of marked the start of what you might describe as public criticism of architects. when professions at that time were very aloof, kind of beyond reproach. And at the time, Charles intervened, people were yelling, you know, you tell him." And he generally thought he was speaking up for the man in the street, somewhat unbelievably. And of course, everybody can pile in on Twitter. And it sort of represents a kind of Great British cock up and compromise and slightly emblematic of the kind of chronic lack of state ambition and vision. Um. And when the you know when the French wanted a new gallery of modern art, they got the Pompidou in Paris, which of course has its problems. But you can't fault the ambition. And architecturally, as I've said, it's not Venturi and Scott Brown's best work. It's very derivative from other projects. And I think it was Rowan Moore, the architectural critic, who famously called it a picturesque piece of slime, which is delicious, but perhaps a tad unfair.
2: And and. Um... And certainly uh, what you're saying about the way that this building created wider discourse around architecture. What's so fascinating now is that the current brief, the current brief is it, it's, it's not explosive. It's not necessarily the sort of thing that is going to create a headline grabbing front page discourse around buildings. It's actually quite subtle. And is, is this really what we're seeing here is basically a bit of conservation architecture, a bit of appreciation for 20th century buildings? Is, 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 is this a completely different kettle of fish, so to speak?
0: Yes, but what strikes me, as you say, is the brief is, is quite low-key compared with the fireworks and controversy around the 1982 competition. Um, and I don't think we're going to get anything like a sort of headline hitting here in terms of, you know, architectural response. I mean, they want a new research wing, which seems sort of inherently unspectacular as a building type. Um, the things that will be more publicly visible, they want to remodel the entrance um, because the problem that they have along with many other high-profile museums and galleries, is that with the increased possibility of terrorist attacks, is that you have to have your bag search on entry, which sounds like a simple thing, but is actually a, log- a logistical nightmare. So if you look at the British Museum, which used to get something like 5,000 visitors a day, who used to be able to walk straight in. Um, in fact, you used to be able to cut through the British Museum from Great Russell Street to Montague Place. Now you have what can only be described as a tent from the Great British Bake Off, or a wedding marquee in the forecourt so you get your bags searched there and people have to queue so you get these long straggly queues miserable in the rain it could take 15-20 minutes and this is your prelude to your encounter with the nation's cultural treasures so the national gallery has the same problem now you can only go in via the sainsbury wing and in this case there's no bake-off tent but there are long straggly queues and although queuing is an english pastime it's a bit miserable and not the image you want to project as a sort of national repository of cultural treasures So the brief, which sort of keeps referring to this idea of a world-class welcome, whatever that is, is really about trying to unpick and sort this out, which is a skill in itself. So what, if anything, it says about British architecture is that times change, requirements change, buildings need to be able to adapt, which is always interesting in itself
2: absolutely and so it seems like uh, obviously in the past this was associated with the kind of style wars headline grabbing stuff but really this is much more about getting the right team for the right job and obviously this is a design competition and you're one of the most knowledgeable and well-connected people in architecture so who do you think is good to be in the runnings to win this one um interestingly the brief doesn't really emphasize a requirement for uh, demonstrating collaboration with young or emerging teams a lot of competition. Competitions recently have had a big focus on diversity within bidding teams. This isn't so apparent in this brief, but there is a kind of emphasis on established collaborations and certainly a few established collaborations, obviously like uh, David Chipperfield and Julian Harrop or someone like Hawkins Brown and Studio Egret West. Those spring to mind. Um, what, what, uh, who do you think might be in the runnings for this one?
0: I mean, I think ideally it should be a small and medium-sized practice, maybe even a younger practice who know about working with and around existing buildings, I know their history, know about materials, know actually how to build. You'd be surprised how many architects don't know how to build, how to make most of space and compromise on promising situations, be clever, sensitive, kind of let things speak for themselves. Um, It's not about being a prima donna, it's about understanding the problems and devising a solution which won't date and look naff in five or ten years' time.
2: Fantastic. Well, obviously on the theme of competitions, that brings us on to our next big story of the week. What we have here is it's to do with a US-led team winning the competition for the Camden Highline. So James Cornerfield Operations, uh, the main team behind the New York Highline, has been chosen following a big, big, big architecture competition to design the Camden Highline here in London. Um, Their New York-based landscape architecture practice, they're collaborating with the Kentish town-based VPPR. Um, but they made their name on the New York High Line. Cathy, what is the New York High Line?
0: The, the New York High Line opened in 2009 and it took what were originally elevated rail tracks in the southwest side of Manhattan and made them into a public landscape route. And it sort of reclaimed the relics of this previous industrial age and transformed them quite skillfully into a sort of landscaped, elevated boulevard with great views of New York. But it, it was kind of a victim of its own success. Originally, it was predicted to have something like 400,000 visitors annually, but now they get around 8 million, so you can kind of see the problem. The rising visitor numbers and adjacency to kind of, you know, this decaying industrial area um, has helped to imp- um, drive a real estate boom in Chelsea and West Village, and that's effectively marginalised and driven out existing communities. Um, so at the start, there's an idea just to make this great elevated park, But because the economy sort of kept changing along the way and sites that were originally valueless became much more valued and properties were flipping, now it's got some of the most expensive real estate in the city and the character of the area has changed and that is kind of largely down to the kind of presence of the High Line. But what's interesting
2: is that working in architecture journalism in the past 10 years, you have basically been kind of bombarded with images of it and references to it. And certainly the teams that worked on this project, such as James Cornerfield Operations, such as Dillis Coffidio Renfro, such as Pierre Ordov, have, have been enormously influential around the world, but especially so in london and it seems like in london i i can think of several competitions several briefs several announcements which have tried to which have basically called for a, a high line for london right uh, where does this come from is this a kind of new york london rivalry why have so many people sought to replicate the success of the new york high line
0: well i think people are sort of beguiled by the idea of alternative routes through the city especially pedestrian routes which take you away from the sort of blaring danger of streets with cars And they give you a sense of tranquility and new perspectives of your own backyard. And I think it worked well in New York because it's such a car-centric city. The streets are so busy and noisy, or alternatively, you're sort of down in the subway, not seeing anything. So to be able to get out and experience something genuinely different above the cars, looking at New York on a plate, as it were, is obviously very exciting. So the
2: Camden High Line, what is it? It's described as a £35 million raised linear park. Uh, It will feature seating areas, cafes, arts and cultural interventions and spaces for charitable activities. It's planned to open in phases from 2024. It's going to regenerate a 1.1 kilometre stretch of abandoned railway connecting Kentish Town Road in Camden Town to Camley Street in Kings Cross. It's going to bypass eight busy roads. It's going to use existing abandoned rail bridges to do this um i mean it sounds pretty extraordinary i'd love to have something like this near where i live as a camden resident uh what do you think is it something that you'll be using will it be a big success
0: well i think it's an interesting i mean i work up in that area and i know it and it is a bit it's this interesting you know there's lots of the railway bridges the roads it can be quite disorientating you know um so i think something another pedestrian uh route will kind of help, I think, to you know, bring sort of clarity to kind of quite a jumbled area. And obviously, I wish anything well that prioritises the pedestrian experience over the imperative to drive. But in some ways, I'm not quite sure whether this will have the same impact as the New York Highline. Uh, for a start, it will be quite different in scale, when you think of the scale of Camden compared with Manhattan. And looking at the proposed trajectory, um, it's just going to be running parallel with the existing overground. So why would you walk rather than take the train? And with all due respect to Camden, it's a slightly grungy urban panorama, unlike New York and its skyscrapers. And also, in a way, London has its own secret walking routes. And I'm thinking in particular of the pedestrian paths along the canal network, which, again, offer this different perspective of the city, a kind of low line, if you like. And in Camden, the canal is also already a well-used route. It takes you down to King's Cross or west to Regent's Park without the sort of inconvenience of trains rattling past you. And it's genuinely public. You know, you meet all sorts of people and things along the canal. So at this stage, I have to say, I'm not sure how successful this is going to be.
2: So obviously, we're discussing the architecture competition and the appointment of the team led by James Cornerfield uh, to win this competition. Now, obviously, I'm an architecture journalist, so I write a lot about... Sorry, I'm... Sorry, scratch... I'm a competitions editor for the Architects Journal, so I write a lot about architecture competitions, and I follow, obviously, the competitions, but also who wins them as well. And I think it's pretty remarkable how much teams involved with the original New York Highline have been involved in other projects around the world. Now, Diller Scofidio Renfro, uh, they're one of the teams, uh, one of the designers that was part of the New York Highline team, uh, have won quite a few competitions in London. For example, uh, the um, Centre for Music at the Barbican and also the V&A East uh, Collection Store. Uh, they also won won a big competition in Aberdeen uh, for Union Terrace Gardens, and they're involved in designing the Tide at North Greenwich, uh, a kind of raised, really cool raised walkway that allows you to see the river. Um, but here we go, James Corner, who... Uh, had is also part of the original New York Highline team uh, but was bidding separately from Dillis Fi Renfro has gone ahead and won uh, this competition um, do you think it's the right move to award this contract to the original designer or do you think the the clients and the organizers of the competition should have gone for like a new emerging talent for example uh, you know some of the amazing bids that were put in there by people like we made that or field and Fowls and so on? <laughs>
0: Well, again, I think it's one of these time will tell things, but you do sort of have to wonder about the idea of just kind of hiring the highline guys um, rather than looking what other people kind of might bring to the party. Um, And the Camden milieu is very different, as I've already said, from New York. And although they've got a local Camden practice, VPPR, they're part of the team. It maybe just feels a bit like window dressing, you know, to get a local practice on board. Um, uh, And, Diller and Scafiddi, who worked with James Corner on the um, New York Highline, they started out as sort of edgy artsy designers in the 70s, was much rough around the edges. And they were interesting architects working with artists. But now they've morphed into a bigger, more corporate practice. Um, and they've done a sort of mini Highline on the Greenwich Peninsula, which I don't think has been a success. So again, I'm not sure. I think maybe people are kind of familiar with what a Highline entails. You know, it's a kind of known quantity now. So maybe they should have looked elsewhere, maybe just not got the Highline guys.
2: But it neatly brings us on to our next story, which is also to do with a major, major kind of, well, certainly high-profile intervention in the public realm of London. This is something that's been covered everywhere. It's been on the BBC London television news, it's been in the Evening Standard, it's certainly been in the Architects Journal and other other architectural press. And this is for a huge, new 25-metre-high mound for oxford uh, street at the end marble arch actually and it's designed by mvrdv kathy what's this all about well what is pe- this mound
0: <laughs> well people do like going up things they like going up towers viewing platforms wheels pills and this is basically an artificial hill that you can go up and sniff the air on a viewing platform uh i think they can take 25 people at a time basically admire oxford street and come down again Uh, whilst paying what's called this nominal sum for the privilege. So its architects uh, claim that it's a comment on the urban layout of Marble Arch. They look at the site's history, and by looking at the past, we look to the future, which is very profound. And we enlarge the park and lift it to the corner. But, I mean, I kind of have to say, why would you do this? I mean, um, Marble Arch is a hellhole of traffic views, which, at the best of times, it's basically just a giant roundabout. Perhaps it's a bit less, you know, crowded these days because of Covid. But why would you make it into a hill, which is apparently modelled on Glastonbury Tor, the model of Glastonbury Tor, which featured the opening ceremony at the London Olympics? And as a Scot, I'm always puzzled by this English obsession with Glastonbury Tor. And speaking of the history of Marble Arch, um, it was famously the site of the execution gallows at Tyburn, where people were regularly hung uh, in lavish, drunken public spectacles. And from which I discover today, we get the word hangover. So I think MVRDV have missed a trick there.
2: Absolutely, it does seem like they're certainly sort of tapping into the the historical context of it being a site of spectacle. Uh, but who is MVRDV? It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people might not have heard of them, but who are? Why are they so important?
0: Well, MVRDV are a Dutch practice. They were founded by Winnie Maas, uh, Jacob van Rijs and Natalie De Vries. So you get a kind of alphabet soup, you know, from there. Their names become a kind of an alphabet soup moniker. And they are one of what we call in the trade super-Dutch practices who became well-known uh, doing offbeat, quirky, slightly provocative projects during the noughties when there was lots of money around for that kind of thing. But again, they've become more mainstream over the years. And I don't see the point of this man, to be honest, because it's going to be temporary and it'll be raised at the end of six months. I mean, I think it would be far better to figure out a permanent solution to the problems of Marble Arch, rather than relying on this unsatisfactory temporary tour.
2: Yeah, certainly I hear you on that. Marble Arch um, is an extraordinary space, and I think the only time I've really, really, really enjoyed being there uh, was when it was momentarily turned over as an XR protest camp, and there were no cars at all, and it was a very kind of festival atmosphere. But certainly in in any kind of current situation, it's very difficult to, to cross... Uh, It's terrifying to try and find the subway uh, that connects it all together. There's some very dubious uh, public art on display in there.
0: Just this idea of getting cultural events taking place outdoors, I think certainly that's going to be uh, very popular this summer. I think anything taking place in the open air will be mobbed because people are going slightly crazy with lockdown. And honestly, I'd go to the opening of an envelope for chance of in the chance in sitting park with some sun, a tingin and some state-sanctioned company.
2: OK, Cathy, I'll be there with you. That sounds absolutely fantastic. <laughs> OK, it brings us on to our next big story of the week. Thomas Heatherwick's new personal assistant, a job that was posted on Dazeen Jobs. Uh, it very quickly went viral on Twitter and you can read about it in the AJ's Astragal column. I'm just going to read you uh, a little bit of this job description because it really explains what is so extraordinary about it. So number one on the very long list of things that this new personal assistant will be required to do is moving Thomas between meetings and making sure he's always on time. The list goes on. Coordinating and setting up internal design reviews. Monitoring Thomas's inbox for personal emails. Updating his contact database. Daily travel packs and planning. What is that? A kind of pack lunch or something? Assisting with children's schedules when required. Managing Thomas's personal appointments and weekends. Brilliant. Um, Organising Thomas's holidays and travel plans. Ad hoc tasks that Thomas may require, such as vehicle maintenance, going to the tailor, Making a fancy dress costume, kathy, what's this all about what's what's all this what, Why is this such a sensation?
0: Oh dear, well, I think it's schadenfreude, to be honest. Um, it, the reason for it's everyone sort of enjoying this deliciously terrible and too much information advert, um because I'm afraid poor old Thomas Heatherwick's become a bit of a whipping boy amongst the architectural fraternity um, because his his whimsical design creations, which are not to everyone's taste, and also the fact that he might have started out small and engaging, but has come to represent a kind of crass, neoliberal trophy architecture that you plonk on sites to zhuzh up the evisceration of the inner city. And I'm thinking of the Vessel at Hudson Yards in New York, which is a preposterous piece of archie sculpture, and the equally preposterous peeling roofs at Coldrop's Yard at King's Cross. And of course, let's not forget the spectacular failure of the Garden Bridge. So I suppose it's rather delicious when something like this also, a preposterous job advert happens because it speaks volumes about Heatherwick and the demands he makes on his staff. And you know he really is as you know bad as his buildings.
2: Absolutely, I hear you. So what? So possibly it's a bit of an overreaction. It possibly uh, embeds some of our kind of conclusions about Thomas, especially when it uh, he's so strongly associated with controversial projects like the Garden Bridge, uh, for example. Uh, but Kathy, I mean, you've known and worked alongside some of the big celebrity superstars of architecture and architecture media, um, certainly in the United Kingdom, certainly around the world. I mean, is Thomas Heatherwick a kind of special exception because he's celebrity? Or are they all really like this? Are they all really needing a kind of super mini-me to do the job for them?
0: Uh, I'm afraid that possibly, probably, yes, there's a definite touch of Heatherwickery in most high-profile architects who tend to be demanding and used to getting what they want. Um, There's a legendary anecdote about Zaha. Indeed, someone was on the way to a job interview, and as they sort of reached the office, a computer came flying out the window, lobbed by Zaha herself. Um, But apart from Zaha, it's still... He's no longer with us, I'm afraid, sadly. It's still a very white male-dominated profession, and men, I'm afraid, tend to get off on power trips and bullying and, you know... um, But to use a mad men analogy... Uh, everyone thinks that Don Draper, when in fact they're more like Pete Campbell.
2: Absolutely and certainly um, it's something that I've experienced you know as an architectural journalist there are certain people that you simply uh, cannot get in touch with by email or telephone and there are some amazing personal assistants out there who are doing uh, a beautiful job of like bringing the so-called genius uh, to the rest of the world providing that interface uh, that makes it all happen so uh, I wish the very best of luck uh, for whoever goes for and who, for whoever wins uh, this job but certainly I think really what what we're seeing here is possibly a story about how not to write a job advert and uh on the topic of job adverts, I can tell you one that is very well written and that is the big 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 job advert of this month and this week it is for the new open city digital content creator this is a fantastic role not least because you will get to work alongside me on this show the lundown but also on the open city podcast also on our open city on-demand audio tours and also on our amazing 360-degree live video cycle tours. Uh, this is fantastic stuff, and it's a fantastic team that we're all immensely proud to be part of. So this is a job advert which is open for applications until the 1st of March. But while we're on the topic of job adverts, uh, we are lucky to have Catherine Slessor. Catherine Slessor was awarded an MBE for services to architectural journalism, somebody who knows more about careers in media than many other people. How did you? How did your career in architecture start out?
0: Well, I started out studying architecture and I studied architecture at Edinburgh University in the late 70s, early 80s. And then I left architecture school and came to work in London. And when you leave architecture school, there's this terrible feeling that, you know, you're just going to be working, designing opera houses and, you know, uh, uh, museums and art galleries. And actually I ended up, you know, as most people do, um, you know, making tea and doing brick details. Um, So um, I did that for a bit. And then I... Saw an advert for a technical editor on the Architects Journal, uh, which is the weekly professional architecture magazine, uh, British professional architecture magazine. And they didn't want someone, they wanted somebody with an architecture qualification rather than journalistic experience. So I joined, I got the job and sort of learnt on the job how to do the job. And there was an idea that you could um, go back into practice after spending some time on the magazine. And I rather liked the life of a journalist rather than the life of an architect so i fell down the rabbit hole and got stuck which is which has been very enjoyable and i think i've made a better architectural journalist than i would have made an architect um so that's that's what happened that's what happened to me
2: Kathy, it's been an immense pleasure to have you on the Lundown this week. I hope you can join us again in the future. Um, Where can people listening uh, read a few more of your articles and find out more about what you're up to?
0: Well, I'm still writing for the Architects Journal and I'm still writing for the Architectural Review. So, um, you know, you can see my work uh, on their websites if you don't subscribe to the magazines. And I'm also on Twitter.
2: Fantastic. Thanks once again. Look forward to reading more.
0: Pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: You've been listening to The Lundown, a new show from Open City, exploring the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. You can tweet at the show using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N, or at Open City London. We want to hear what you think, what you want us to be discussing in the show next week. Open City is a charity dedicated to making London more open, accessible and
0: equitable.